Today's reading will be from Mark, Mark 10, 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time? houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray that we might have understanding this morning according to God's grace. Heavenly Father, we pray again that you'll enable me to communicate your truth to your people Humble us this morning, we pray, Holy Spirit, to be listeners, hearers of your word, for the glory, for the name of your Son, for the blessing, sanctification of your people. Amen. A man ran up to Jesus. Matthew informs us he was a young man, likely in his mid-twenties. Luke adds that he was a ruler. We're not sure what kind of ruler. Maybe a synagogue ruler. Luke also adds that he was extremely rich. Mark, we read, Here tells us he had great possessions. Matthew, much property. So with this guy comes the triple threat. He's in the prime of life. He has great wealth and influence. Not only that, he's no villain. Notice he was sincere, 
spiritually minded, well-known, well-liked, and by all outward appearances, this is the kind of guy you'd want to marry your daughter. I mean, this is the classic portrait of a young, decent fellow who has the world by the tail. Finally, a regular guy comes up to Jesus. Think for a moment the type of people Jesus has encountered in Mark's gospel up to this point. Chapter 1, a demonized man screams out in the synagogue, followed by a man covered with leprosy who cried out, Lord, if you're willing, you can. A paralytic lowered down through the roof. They they, they pummel a hole through this thing, and, and they lower him down so that Jesus might heal him. There's a despised tax collector, Levi, who we know is Matthew, called by Jesus as one of the 12. A man with a withered hand in the synagogue. A naked man running around the tombs indwelt by numerous demons, screaming out, cutting himself. A woman with a discharge of blood for 12 years reached out to touch the hem of his garment. Jairus' 12-year-old daughter, dead, he raises her up. The Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile outcast, asked that her daughter be set free from demonic oppression. There's the healing of the deaf mute man. There's the healing of the blind man in Bethsaida. And in addition to that, numerous crowds, he feeds 5,000, then he feeds 4,000. Each and every time we see our Lord full of compassion and mercy. And here, a much different situation. Jesus is met by a clean-cut idol worshiper. Now, it doesn't say that as Jesus set out on his journey, an idol worshiper ran up to him, but there is an idol. There's a false god that this man is living for. Now, Not an idolater as we typically think. We think of someone carving out a statue out of stone or wood and bowing down before it or burning incense in front of it or putting fruit in front of it, like at the local Chinese restaurant, a little fat Buddha out front, and it's got a a plate of fruit. You ever seen that? Not like that. Idols come in many forms. Wherever devotion and commitment that belongs to God is given to someone or something else looking for what only he can provide, say, be it joy, contentment, soul satisfaction, an idol. It can come in the form of a relationship, success, Position, beauty, strength, 
wealth, accomplishments of your children, an idealized lifestyle comes in that form. It could be past misery. You just won't let it go. You like to steep in that miry pool of misery. It could be a ministry position. I've seen biblical counselors um, who have a need to be needed. They love to be called out, sought out, and sometimes there's this weird satisfaction of being another person's leaning post. Now, all of those things kept in their proper place are good. But when they become a source of devotion, a a kind of sanctuary or or a, a soul satisfaction, i.e. worship, as all idols are, they become very cruel, very deceiving. All idols are pleasing at first. It's always pleasing. There's always a draw, but after a while, they become very demanding, very cruel. They require more and more of us. They're very patient, very patient. But eventually, they sink their hooks into us and enslave us, ruling us and owning us. Now, what I want us to see in this text is not primarily what idol worship is like, but much more what Jesus is like with idol worshipers, okay? What Jesus is like with idol worshipers. He is a savior, the savior, who insists, who desires to take from our grip certain treasures, to rest from our hearts, W-R-E-S-T, which means to turn, twist, and take out from our hearts certain treasures, so as to provide a far greater treasure, and that is the unperishing treasure of eternal life. The very treasure that this young, wealthy ruler, this clean-cut man, was seeking. Look at it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question of all questions. That is a personal and profound inquiry. That's the introduction. Now, you will not understand the full significance of what is happening here in this account without an understanding of the previous episode, for which we looked at just before Easter. Because a deliberate contrast is being drawn. You don't want to miss it. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include this encounter immediately following Jesus blessing the little children who 
are being brought to Jesus. Infants who are not rich, they're not rulers, they're not self-sufficient, they're not type A personalities. They're not in the prime of their life, but they are utterly dependent. Another object lesson for the characteristics required for those who would enter the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look back at verse 15. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Okay, that is, there's a characteristic of little ones, even infants, that is true of every genuine Christian. There is one major similarity that a Christian shares with babies, little ones. And that similarity, that likeness, that resemblance is not the subjective virtues of openness or simplicity, sincerity, but it is the objective reality that is true of all babies, little children, And that is all of them share one thing in common common, regardless of where or to whom they are born. One. They are, every one of them, utterly helpless and wholly trusting of their parents. They bring nothing. They have achieved nothing. They earn nothing. They can contribute nothing. Nothing. They haven't yet learned how to be suspicious, cynical, wary, distrustful. They receive without any attempt of trying to earn anything. They just take. They need. They're needy and they don't even know how needy they are. Like consciously, I mean... They'll cry because they need. Okay, no sooner does Jesus conclude his teaching on the necessity of entering, entering the kingdom as a little baby than there appears before him a young man inquiring about entrance into that kingdom on altogether different terms in stark contrast to utterly dependent children. He is a self-sufficient ruler. Determined to earn his way. Determined. The very fruit, trying to earn his way, is the fruit of the root of his heart, which is idolatry. Idolatry is the root. Thinking he can earn his way, self-sufficiency, the fruit. Notice the account. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. Now remember, beloved, they're in Perea, but beyond the Jordan. Uh, The ministry in Upper Galilee, complete, done, over with. So setting out on his journey, what journey? 
his journey towards Jerusalem where he will be hung on a cross for our sins. That journey. Notice he comes running. Running expresses urgency uh, because in Jewish culture, mature men did not run. Men of influence did not run. The more influential you were, the less you hurried. Everyone else's schedule would be set to accommodate you, an older, mature, influential man. So rushing undermined your dignity. And that's what's so amazing about the father in the, in the story of the prodigal son. The father, remember, represents God. And he's on the lookout for his, for his son, for his prodigal son. And the day he sees him from afar, he girds up his loins and he runs through the village to retrieve his son. Again, representing God. So here, this man runs up to Jesus, throwing all dignity to the wind, and he kneels down. Looks promising, amen? Doesn't this look promising? So the, the, the picture is that of a worried man who can't wait to get an answer to his question. Now, Jews did not think it appropriate to kneel before just any man. You don't just kneel before a rabbi. So his gesture is an acknowledgement that Jesus is no ordinary rabbi. This man recognizes that. He sees this. So he runs up, kneels down, both uncommon practices. And he asked him, verse 17, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, good teacher was, was not a common title for rabbi. There, there are no known Jewish parallels to this kind of address, and Mark does not include the adjective good for any other person in the entire gospel. So it's uncommon to run, uncommon to kneel, un uncommon to cry out, good teacher. So in light of this question, he he's obviously deeply concerned about the greatest of all life's questions. How do I get to heaven? How can I be sure I will go to heaven? So he realizes that Jesus is just not any famous rabbi. He runs to him, he kneels down before him, he calls him good, and then what must I do? Matthew adds, what good deed must I do? What, some righteous deed, perhaps give away some of my money, uh, maybe dedicate myself to social justice? The social gospel is not the gospel, by the way. How can I earn my way? Now, as fallen human beings, we naturally assume there's something I must do. 
There's something I must do. After all, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us that God has put eternity into man's heart. He has placed it there. So then in our natural state, we'll say, well, then what must I do? Verse 18, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Let's be very clear what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not saying that he's not good. He's not saying that he's not God. After all, remember in John chapter 8, the great I am passage, Jesus said to the Pharisees before Abraham was I am. In that same chapter, Jesus asked, which one of you convicts me of sin? Answer, no one, because he's perfectly, what, good. In Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, John the Baptist came out to prepare the way for Yahweh, the Lord referring to who? Jesus. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus declares to have authority to forgive sins, and only God can forgive sins. So he's not saying he's not good. He's not saying he's not God. So for this man to call Jesus good, Jesus is either calling this man's understanding out as regards goodness, he's calling his idea of goodness into question, or the man's understanding of Jesus into question. So his question about good, you know, it's not meant to drive a wedge between goodness and Jesus when Jesus asked this man, why do you call me good? Jesus asked the question to point out an issue with the man's understanding of goodness and his concept of who God actually is. That is God in his perfection. God is infinite. He's immutable. He does not change. He's holy. He's just. He's true. God is other. Amen? God is other. He's spotless. He's pure. He's different from us. And he's good in a way that we cannot fully understand. God is the definition of goodness. He's the source of all goodness. So Jesus here is exposing this man's superficial concept of what goodness really is. So since no one is good but God, there's no good you can do. Get it? The embodiment of goodness that necessitates God's acceptance is standing in front of the man. The only good one, the only true one. Does this man understand God and his goodness, his perfections? Obviously not. Verse 19, you know the commandments. This is amazing. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, 
Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Now, Jesus' response shocks us at first. You know, he doesn't tell them about, you know, justification by faith alone. (laughs) Instead, he confronts him with six of the Ten Commandments. Six commandments from the Decalogue. Okay, one of the purposes of the law, in case you don't know, is to, was to expose sin. That's what the law does. To see God's perfect righteous standard and to realize that we do not and we cannot live up to it. To reveal our need, not validate our standing before holy God. By the way, God's law is good. That's why we have it hanging up. God's law is good. Never to be thought of as a bad thing because it's his word. It reveals his character. God's law. A lot of times Christians, oh, the law. The law is beautiful. It just can't save you. It doesn't have the power to redeem. The law only has the power to condemn. It reveals all men are dead in their sins. All are guilty. Natural man cannot keep God's law. And the law cannot redeem from its own condemnation. It condemns. It exposes sin. And the law even stirs up sin that is within us. You're walking down the street and there's a beautiful lawn on the corner. You might just walk by and think, that's beautiful grass. And not even think of stepping on it until you come back the next day and there's a sign on the law that says, do not walk on the grass. (laughs) Now you're tempted to walk on the grass because you're a rebel. You want to violate the law, right? That happened to me as a paper boy. Actually, I used to travel through We didn't have fences like we do today, so on my paper route, I'd cut through yards. No one ever complained. When I first, the first time I did it, it was on my bicycle. And there was a sense of conviction in me that "Eh, I probably shouldn't do this. But after doing it many times, conscious awareness went away. The day that there was a sign that says, do not ride on the grass, it was then that I, and I did, Then I transgressed the law purposefully. This is what the law does. It stirs up sin already within us. It can't save. So notice um, the commandments Jesus cites, they they have to do with with external behavior. Notice he he doesn't cite the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. He plays into this guy's sense of moral satisfaction. This Jesus master teacher, here he is, playing into his sense of moral uprightness. And what's so fascinating is, is how, how this young man responds. Notice, all these I've kept from my youth. So when he heard the law, he, he saw his own success. But notice, Jesus doesn't even debate the point. Did you get that? He doesn't debate this. 
nor does he raise the Decalogue to its highest moral degree, i.e. the Sermon on the Mount. If you commit adultery in your heart, you've already committed adultery and so on. Instead, he plays into this man's sense of moral satisfaction. And you know what he's doing? He's about ready to touch this man's Achilles heel. Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, Jesus is not saying, oh, just one more thing, and then you'll have all the boxes checked. He's not saying that. He's zeroing in on an issue of the heart. That's what he's doing. That's what he's up to. And by the way, this is not a universal command for any and all who come to faith in Christ to sell all material goods and give it to the poor. For some, it may be. For some, it may be. Why? In order to dismantle and dismember idolatry. Jesus had wealthy friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, who accommodated him, and the 12. It's not money that's the root of all evil, but the love of it, worship. So Jesus is getting at something here, and it's the thing in this guy's life, standing in the place of God, it's his idolatry. Firm, isn't he? You know, I think many times people make the mistake that if you really love someone, you won't offend them. That's hogwash. You know, at all costs, be tolerant if you really love them. Look, because Jesus loves him, he exposes, exposes this man's covetousness. He brings it out. He's, getting, he's probing his heart. What do you say to loved ones in the clutches of false hope? In the clutches of false religion? What, tread lightly? No, you speak truth. You tell them the truth and you call them out of their idolatry if you love them. This is what Jesus does. He's revealing to this man where his treasure truly is, who his Lord is. So Jesus here is digging to the root of his problem. He exposes what this man truly loves and what he treasures. Again, the fruit on the limb is self-righteous presumption. That's the fruit on the limb. And the root which Jesus is, is digging up and out is that I can do something to inherit eternal life. So Jesus exposes the root of the problem. It's idolatry of the heart. But notice, looking at him, he loved him. That's interesting because the hardest people to love are self-righteous people. That struck me years ago. You know, the people who, who think that they have their spiritual act together. I mean, when you're in Christ and you understand that all are sinners, the wages of sin is death, and that grace is required 
to get to heaven. Self-righteous people are hard to deal with, but he, notice he, he loves him. See, this is Jesus saying, come to me. Come to me that you may have life everlasting. Take my yoke. Come to me. Get rid of that which is and will ultimately destroy you. Come follow me. I will give you rest. What you're looking for, that's what I provide. So the one who's good is the one who is God, the God who saves. Standing before this man. Notice verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. He was disheartened. That's a very strong emotional word. He's in anguish. Notice, he wants eternal life. That's why he runs up to Jesus. He asks the critical question, but Jesus, giving a critical answer, is what causes him to walk away in deep sorrow. His heart and hope, they're in his riches. So he has a divided heart. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Parable of the sower. Sower goes out, sows seed. The seed is the word of God. It falls here, there, everywhere. Notice verse 18, Mark 4. The ones sown among thorns, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Choked out, kills. Sucks the life out of you. See, this is what he will physically die with, riches. He'll physically die with these riches and this is what he will spiritually die from. This idol of his. You know, even coming to faith in Jesus Christ, beloved, brothers, sisters, idols can emerge and re-emerge. And oftentimes, you know, the thought of Jesus taking something away from us frightens us because uh, we don't know how we'll function without it, whatever it is. So following Christ, that is Christianity, always consists of God seizing something from our grip, wresting something from our hearts continually. Who was it? John Calvin who said the human heart is like an idle factory. See, when the lion of the tribe of Judah enters the house, the house cannot remain the same. Lion, witch in the wardrobe. Who's it, Susan? Who asked, the, the, the lion, I mean, is, is, is he dangerous? And Mr. Beaver answered, of course he's dangerous. But he's good. But he's good. The one who takes, takes whatever it is 
because it's killing us. It's destroying us. And what he has is always better. One amen over there. (laughs) See, even after coming to faith in Christ, Jesus continues to look at us and love us, and he'll say, whether it's an idol or just plain old sin, the one he loves, he looks at you and he says, let's talk about that troubled temper. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about your need for approval. Uh, Let's talk about the anorexia. Uh, Let's talk about your need always to be a contrarian. You're not happy unless there's conflict and you're running your mouth in the church. Let's talk about that. Your need to always have something to say. Let's talk about that. I want to take that away from you. Let's talk about your anxiety. Let's talk about your fear. Let's talk about your sexuality. Let's talk about your money. Talking about this man's money, verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And we'll see why they were amazed in just a moment, beloved. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to them, and said to him, they replied, then who can be saved? Now, don't think that this doesn't apply to you because you don't earn a six-figure salary. Because if you live in America on a worldwide scale, you're wealthy. You drove here in a car. You'll drive home to your apartment or house in a car, and you you already know you're going to have lunch and dinner. You're very well-to-do. So do not think this doesn't apply. And and I'm sorry, by the way, when Jesus talks about camels and needles, he's speaking about a literal camel going through a a literal needle. Sorry to say, sorry to say, there, there, there is no evidence anywhere that there was a gate in Jerusalem known as the eye of the needle. And you know, when a camel's loaded down, you gotta strip everything from it get it to suck in its breath and hold its breath and squeeze it through the, through, the, through the eye of the needle. Sorry, not there. Or the idea that, well, rope or twine um, sounds in, Ar- in Aramaic like camel. So it's like trying to put a, a heavy thread through a needle. No, no, no. Literal camel, literal needle, this is a proverbial expression of that which is impossible. That's the whole point. Don't buy into this ridiculous nonsense. Well, I read in this comment, well, pff, go study further. Literal camel. That's how hard it is. It's impossible. 
Now, that flies in the face of today's health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Does it not? The name it and claim it clan, the great embarrassment of American evangelicalism. False teachers like Oral Roberts, he's dead. Started that nonsense in the 1940s. Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, Fred Price, Benny Hinn, Joel Olstein. Oh, he's naming dames again. That's right. Because if you're listening to them, you're listening to false teachers, the perpetrators of the last 60 years of that nonsense. Now, as absurd as they are and their teaching is, that false doctrine, believe it or not, was not born in the USA. It was born right here. First century Jews embraced what is known as retribution theology. Okay? The belief was that there is a direct correspondence between your circumstances, your wealth, and God's favor and blessing on your life. That was the belief. That's an ancient version of the prosperity gospel taught by the rabbis who equated God's blessing with material prosperity. That's why the disciples are blown away by Jesus' words. It was inconceivable in the first century that riches could actually be a barrier to the kingdom and not a sign of entry. They're blown away. They don't know what to do with this. They can't put all this together. After all, if anyone's qualified for the kingdom, it's this guy. He exemplifies God's favor and blessing because that's what they'd been taught until Jesus I mean, if this guy isn't on the team, who is? Team Jesus. (laughs) And then Jesus says, give it all away. Come follow me. Notice what Jesus does not do here. He does not say, you know, if you want to follow me with riches on the throne of your life, we can make that work out. (laughs) After all, you're a seeker. Let's be seeker sensitive. He's seeking God. No, he's not. Many professing Christians in our day immediately conclude anytime there's God talk or Jesus talk that comes out of someone's mouth, oh, they're seeking after God. John MacArthur observes that Jesus, and I quote, would have failed a course in personal evangelism in almost every seminary on the earth by what he does in this passage. Leave it to MacArthur. My brother. You know, instead of, instead of the typical appeal today, stand to your feet, repeat this prayer, come forward and receive Jesus, you know what Jesus would say? Stay in your seat and count the cost. That's what he did. Count the cost. And, verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Because they thought all people with wealth were blessed by God and they were saved. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, with man, it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. 
Does it say all things are probable with God? No. I don't know God's sovereign will, but all things are possible. This, in other words, requires a miracle of sovereign divine grace. He must intervene or you will be left in your sins, attached to your idols. What did Jesus say in John 6, 44? No one what? May? No, he said no one can come. It's impossible. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, the word is drag. Drag. You can go look it up. Must be drawn by the power of God. Grace alone. If and only if the Holy Spirit regenerates our high-minded, self-righteous, prideful souls and opens our eyes as a child as to our utter dependence upon the one true and living God, you will be left in your sin. So then what is impossible for you and me, we can understand is God's mercy and grace that allows me entry alone. I provide nothing. That's what a baby does. Nothing. Nothing. In every other religion, when the question is asked, what must I do to be saved? Okay, the answer is some sort of list of things to be done, some ceremonies, some fastings to be performed, some pilgrimage to be made. All world religions. And then, having done all these things, I'm supposedly ready and qualified for the hereafter because I checked all the boxes. That's world religion, friends. I was reminded of that this week. My wife and I like to sit out front, told the men this on Thursday. We like to sit in the back. If I don't want to be bothered, I sit in the back. But we want to interact with our neighbors, so we sit in the front a lot. And I, have, I love my neighbors. They're great. I love them. Most of them are not Christian. But I just, I love them. One of them's a Muslim. He comes down. My wife has made food for them, so she's got to go to all the right rest, uh, uh, um, stores so that the animal was sacrificed correctly, all this type of thing, all this legalistic stuff. So she does it. She makes them food. They've made food for us. So he comes over to tell me how good the food was, and I'm sitting in my chair, and he's standing above me, and Ramadan is coming up next month, and he's talking about that, and I'm listening, and I know what the five pillars of Islam are, uh, so I play ignorant, and I simply ask the question, let me ask you, how do you get to heaven? Answer, you earn it. So that gives me an opportunity to, to splash some gospel in there, trying to keep the relationship going with gentleness and respect, teaching, you know, our good deeds are nothing but filthy, used rags before a holy God. And then I just point to myself. I'm a sinner. What I deserve is hell. I need grace. I need a substitute. There's only one. It's Jesus, the Christ, who literally died and rose up again. And hopefully, our, our conversation will continue. Our dialogue will continue. But as you look at this, and we see things like this, now, this is a human impossibility. I'll never cause him to believe Ever, never will I do anything. However, does that, is that cause for us to throw up our hands and go, well, it's impossible, he's Muslim. 
or my hardened, unbelieving husband, he'll never be converted. I'll just throw up my hands. My wayward child will never repent. Throw up my hands. That belligerent co-worker will never see the light. With man, it is impossible. But not with God. Therefore, we're driven to pray all the more because only he can transform them. They're not going to transform themselves. It's the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything to follow you. I.e., are you impressed? (laughs) Peter. By the way, he still had his fishing boat because when Jesus dies, right, he's all perplexed. What does he do? He goes fishing in his boat. So do do with that as you will. (laughs) See, Jesus takes, he takes to make better. Christianity isn't only about loss, beloved. A lot of people think, man, if I come to Christ, he wants to remove everything from me, everything I hold near and dear to my heart, and he wants me to adopt some nihilistic lifestyle. It's not true. So now we move to the far greater treasure. Here, he's gonna, he wants to wrest this from this man's heart. He walks away saddened, and don't know if this guy ever came to faith in Christ. I don't know if he met Paul in Damascus years down the road, and all of a sudden he's a believer. We don't know. Scriptures, they do not say. We know he went away deeply troubled. That's what we do, though. Notice the far greater treasure In other words, whatever loss there is in following Christ, there's greater gain. Jesus said, verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, with persecutions, And in the age to come, eternal life. Notice, you may lose your father because of the the cross of Jesus Christ. But notice, you don't gain a father in that next verse. Notice that. Why? Because we have the same father. Almighty God. So the gain, the promises aren't only meant, in other words, for the eschaton, the final, final of all things, but they spill over into the here and now. We know this in, this in this very congregation. Some of you have lost family members because of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Some of you have lost fellowship with certain relatives because of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say of himself? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword to divide a father from his son. Truth divides, but it also, notice, provides great gain. Look around you. Surrogate family. Right? Some of y'all are my mothers. I won't point out who those are. Some of y'all are my sisters, my brothers. 
But we all have one Father. We all have one Father through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, in Matthew 20, when Jesus tells the story about the laborers in the vineyard who worked some one hour, some three hours, some five hours, some eight hours, all different amounts of time doing the same work, they all received the same pay at the end of the day, right? Now, in that context, Jesus says, those who are first shall be last, and those who are last shall be first. In other words, because of the master, part of his household, everyone crosses the finish line equally. First, last, last, first. Matthew 20, 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Every believer crosses the finish line victoriously because they're all in the master of the house. Here, here, despite all appearances to the contrary, Jesus will make good on his promise. And here, he has reversed the order of things in terms of how sinners understand salvation. That's the idea here. The first, that is, those who regard themselves as the head of the race and expect to be rewarded, holding on to their claim upon God, seeking to earn their way because of their deeds, because of what they have here, will be in for a huge disappointment. It will be revealed that they will be last, remaining lost. And the last, those who like little children, humble themselves, realizing they have nothing to offer, and they sacrifice all self-righteous, idolatrous attempts to stand before a holy God shall be first. That, I believe, is the difference between those two texts. So question, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? On what are you banking your life and eternity on? Question, is Jesus preeminent in your life? or something or someone else preeminent? What's the greatest rival of allegiance to Christ in your heart? We all have to do this kind of self-examination. Don't think I don't do it. Anything that places loyalty and love of Jesus Christ. Is there anything? Is there anyone? Is there anything or anyone that if you were asked to walk away from for the sake of Christ, would that something or someone cause you to be deeply grieved and to walk away like this rich young ruler? Have you humbled yourself as a child, forsaking all sense of entitlement, to entrust yourself fully and completely to the good one who is God and the only entry, the only doorway, the only gospel. Jesus is the gospel and means of salvation. Is he the one? See, this, this, this man came to the right person with the right question. 
standing in front of this rich young ruler was Jesus, whose heart was full of love for sinners, not unlike this man who would go to the cross for sinners. He would die on behalf of sinners, but this man loved riches more than Jesus, and he went away sorrowful. It's tragic, and it happens every day. Every day. What must you do to inherit eternal life? You don't do anything. He did it all. You don't do anything in terms of works. You surrender all hope and self-salvation. You surrender it all to Jesus Christ. And you will inherit the kingdom. Amen? May we never forget that. Throw yourself on the mercy of Christ if you haven't. Hold fast to him alone if you have. Never let go. And as little idols emerge and re-urge, or re-merge and emerge and emerge and re-merge, all of the above, crush them. Kill them. Kill them. Amen. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Jesus, the King, our Savior. Thank you for this story, as sad as it is. Lord, you've delivered some of us from a place not unlike this. And you've delivered all of us from the broad road that leads to destruction. You've placed us on the narrow road that leads to eternal life with the gift of trust and faith in Jesus Christ, a gift of grace alone. Lord, help us to, to maintain our focus upon our King who's delivered us and deliver, Lord, our friends, those in the minds of your people at this very moment. We lift every single one of them up to you. And we pray that you will intervene in their life, transform their hearts of stone, Place them with a heart of flesh. Let them look up and cry out for mercy of the one true God. For my Muslim friend, may he and his family come to faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.